Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more, and I also love getting under the covers with my authors. So let's get to it. Hey, listeners, welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Rears Podcast. Uh, today I'm visiting with uh, Catherine Snow-Smith and talking about her book, Rules for the Southern Rule Breaker, Missteps and Lessons Learned. Award-winning North Carolina author Lee Smith says of the book, Catherine Snow-Smith's sure voice, deft pen, hilarious sense of humor, and always original slant on things offer the reader much to enjoy in these delightful essays. The book has 22 chapters or rules, such as always wear sensible shoes, never arrive at the funeral home late, and always know your date's pedigree. And as Catherine says in the foreword of the book, she broke them all. She finds humor and tenderness in these many moments known as life. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Landis. Yeah, so uh, you've got some connections to the Carolinas, right? Although you're not here now. Right. Well, I, I grew up in Raleigh. My whole, till I was 18, went to Chapel Hill, and then my first jobs were in South Carolina and North Carolina, and then I ended up moving to Florida about 25 years ago, but my parents still live in Raleigh, have a lot of good friends in Charlotte, so yeah, I'm definitely still, I've, I'm, in the, I'm in the state once a month. Yeah, and, and you're a writer, and I think writing is in your bloodline, right? I mean, it's uh, your father, I mean, I can't believe this, he worked to did you say to the age of 95 in his job? He just retired he, this past January. Uh, he, not, he wasn't working full time, but uh, he was started as a reporter at the Burlington News and Record. And then he went to the Raleigh Times, the afternoon paper in Raleigh, and was a columnist there and a reporter. Uh, he covered Jesse Helms when he was on the city council. And then uh, he ultimately became the editor of the afternoon paper but continued writing this weekly kind of humor and insightful column. And then when the afternoon paper shut down, he said he'd write the column for the Newton Observer, the morning paper, uh, five or six more years, and he ended up writing it 
until he was 95. So he literally started writing the column in 1950 and finished it in 1990 at age 95. So your dad was in journalism all those years. Your mother also taught English and public speaking. You were just sort of, you had words flowing around you as you were growing up. We did. We really did. Um, And there was no pressure like you need to be a writer or anything like that. But um, I guess there was, there was a lot of, reading and there was a lot of storytelling, which, uh, you know, we didn't say, oh, it's story time, but through both of their careers, they kind of learned how to, my mother taught public speaking and English, but learned how to, you know, listen to people and then retell their stories. So maybe I picked up on some of that. Well, it's always interesting to me how, you know, children take on the occupations of their parents. Uh, I followed my dad, who was a lawyer, but didn't re- go there right away. And uh, you became a journalist after college, but you actually started in another major, I think, right, before, you, right. before you got there. And then you ended up, um, you know, ready to go out and write the stories of the world, ended up in a small town in South Carolina. Yes. Uh, Greer, right down, they called it Greer then. This was before BMW, right before BMW, but right down the road from Charlotte. And um, I was assigned to work for the Greenville News, Greenville, South Carolina News. And so I was assigned to Greer in the Greer Bureau, but I didn't even get to cover Greer. Another reporter ahead of me was covering Greer and I covered Duncan, Lyman and Welford. And anyone from Charlotte has probably seen those signs on I-85. So I had these three very small towns and I did all their city councils and the school board and the police blotter from each town and then human interest. So that was my big start in journalism. Yeah, and I think one of the stories in your book is about uh, being asked out by one of the local uh, police officers. Uh. Well, yeah, <laughs> I guess he was asked me out. He called me uh, at home on a Sunday and asked what I was doing or and said, are you going bogging with me? And I didn't know what bogging was. And that, of course, was frustrating for him. And he had to explain, you know, mud bogging. And I, not that I had, I mean, I would have, love to have tried that, but I wasn't interested in this man, whether he was a source or not, but definitely as a source. So um, I declined and that was the end of that. But then I also, he never looked me in the eye again. And there were only two police officers in that department. So when one of them won't talk to you anymore, it it was hard to continue on getting the good juicy details that weren't in the police reports. Yeah, well, I've heard of uh, reporters having to do some things maybe they didn't want to do to get some stories, but I uh, never heard of one having to go bogging to get that. Well, yeah, stuff. you know, and I so I didn't, so I didn't do that. So maybe I would have, yeah, that I kind of got my source in the, let's see, that was Welford, in the Welford Police Department. Yeah, it kind of dried up there. Uh, and so then you ended up in uh, Florida, and uh, during that time you wrote a parenting column, I understand. Yeah. And uh so tell us about the parenting column and one important thing you learned about parenting from writing that. Well, um, this was back, my first daughter was born in 1996. So, you know, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have Instagram, you didn't have influencers, you didn't have all these bloggers. I mean, so you had, you know, Ann Landers and Dear Abby, and there were obviously doc parenting columns, but I was kind of the okay, this is my first time out. We called it Rookie Mom. An editor came up with the name and it was kind of just honestly saying, okay, this is hard or what do you do about this? And so I would come up with the problem 
And, you know, and one was really good. Uh, it was once, once she was about a year old and you're in the grocery store and strangers come up and want to talk to you or maybe when they're two years old. And meanwhile, you're teaching your children, don't talk to strangers. So how do you, and then when they don't talk, the people in the grocery store think that your child's rude. So I remember calling a child psychiatrist, and which I often did. I would come up with the problem and then I would call an expert or another parent who was more seasoned. And this great child psychiatrist said, you know what? You just say, we're, we're trying to teach her to only talk to people she knows. And she goes, and then you move along to the canned peas and you forget about it. So, um, so I guess what I learned from that was that you're not supposed to be doing it right. And everybody's making mistakes. And, oh, I did, like, I would stop people. I did one on how messy your car can get and literally stood in the tar Target parking lot with my kids and asked people to look in their cars. And one woman was like, well, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I found a rat in my station wagon last week. You know, so it was kind of this open, you know, kind of this chance for everybody to admit, yeah, it's really hard. And then you'd have the parents that would say things like, you know, oh, everybody has a tough time. And I know there was so much pressure for them to learn to read. And then this one coworker said, you know, everybody was worried about when their children were going to learn to read. And by third grade, they'd all caught up with my son. It, you know, so, so then you have the parents that act like we're all in the same playing field, but then the parent competition. So I don't know. I guess I just learned that parents did kind of rejoice in being able to say it's hard. And my daughter also, probably till she was about four, she thought I had a really cool job because somehow she thought it was connected to Pokemon. She was like, my mom works for Pokemon because the column was called Rookie Mom. Okay. Uh, well, this kind of a good transition because the book that you wrote here, Rules for the Southern Rule Breaker, also talks about life lessons. Um, but before we get into the covers of that book, let's talk about the uh, book cover. Our listeners can't see it; they'll see it in the show notes. But uh, paint us a picture here. We got a we got pink, we got pink, but then we've also got something broken on the cover. Right. So there's a broken teacup. And Rules for the Southern Rule Breaker is written in this kind of this pretty but kind of fast script. And that's in hot pink. And it's on kind of a grayish background. And then there's a, a broken teacup. And um, the publisher came up with about, they really did a great job, came up with about four or five different potential covers. And one was... Um, a banana peel that you, I guess, could slip on. And then there was one of shoes turned sideways because sideways because there's a big story about uh, some shoes that had very high heels that I wore and should not have worn in the book. Um, and there was a broken wine glass as an option. But ultimately, we decided the teacup kind of symbolized, well, I guess it could be London or it could be the South. Uh, oh, there was a mint julep cup, which was really pretty, but it, it wasn't broken. You know, it looked more stylized. So we went with the broken teacup to just kind of say, you can be elegant and do things right, and but then something's going to happen. Something's going to go wrong. And then it's called Missteps and Lessons Learned. And it wasn't until I saw it on the cover or the mock-up of the cover, we were calling it Mistakes and Lessons Learned. And I really was like the whole point of the book is it's not always a mistake when you do something that's off the the planned prescription for your life or the planned path. So 
I switched that at the last minute to missteps, which is not quite as you know negative as an actual mistake. Okay, well, the, uh, the broken teacup, uh, sort of a metaphor for the book. You've got some things that are breaking. You're breaking rules. Uh, uh, you ready to get under the covers? Sure, yeah. Hey, listeners, before we get under the covers, I'd like to share some benefits that are available to you, our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. Okay, we're under the covers here with uh, Catherine Snow-Smith with her book, uh, Rules for the Southern Rule Breaker, Missteps and Lessons Learned. And um, Catherine, I think it... Uh, it's interesting to me if we talk about this title, Rules for the Southern Rule Breaker. Um, you've chosen the South. Uh, and if you think about rules for the South, you know, we could be talking about anything from etiquette and hospitality, which might still have their place, to maybe rules that protect systems that uh, discriminate and shame, which probably should be broken. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about when you think of Southern rules? Well, obviously, especially right now, they're there's some very strong and heavy connotations that come to Southern rules that, that need to be broken. This book does not take that, that on as heavily, although I am very much in favor of everything that that's happening right now and in protesting for things that need to obviously be changed. But I think it was more, it's a book, although I think a lot of men would enjoy this book, but it was more kind of the expectations on women and it really, I think anyone in the North or the Midwest would enjoy this book as well. But to try to tailor it to an audience, we, we, you know, I made it Southern Rule Breaker. And I think there just are more expectations in the South for women that you're supposed to do this or you're supposed to do that. And obviously those have changed over the years, but um, it's a little more antiquated. And then when you break the rules, it's a little more shocking maybe and i mean it's not like i you know ran naked down <laughs> you know providence road but <laughs> nothing that strong uh at least not recently right? <laughs> no, no. or not yet <laughs> or not or not yet that's a good way to put it uh, so before we c- talk about some of the stories in the book um i'd like you to do a little reading um from the forward of the book because it does a good job I think of sort of laying out what this book is and what it isn't. All right. So here's from the forward. In this introduction, I'm supposed to write about the purpose and inspiration of this book. I'm supposed to tell you why you should spend $16.95 on it instead of buying another mojito at an expensive restaurant. But as I'm supposedly a rule breaker, I'm going to start with what this book is not. This book is not 10 truths you need to know to live your best life. 
It's not about coming to terms with the divorce or the loss of a sibling. It's not about the rewards of being a journalist. It's not about nurturing your kids or the evils of helicopter parenting. It's not a love letter to the South or hate mail to the North. It's not an ode to divorced moms, happily married moms, working moms, stay-at-home moms, older moms, younger moms, organized moms, or moms who repeatedly try to use their car's keyless entry remote to open the front door of their house. I have been all of those moms at various times over the past 20 plus years. I can't say I was any better at one stage than I was at another. I can say that I tried my best at every stage. So this book is an honest account of times when I may have pushed limits or made rash decisions. The title of each chapter is A Rule I Broke. I think these essays show that there can still be good outcomes when you don't do what everybody expects you to do. I'm not advocating for irresponsible decisions or poor choices. I'm just saying that life is messy for all of us, and sometimes you can't play by the rules. I promise I'm not self-absorbed, said the woman who wrote a book about herself, but friends, other writers and bartenders, mostly bartenders, have told me that I have an innate ability to see both the humor and the poignancy in many of life's experiences. So read what's happened to me and think of times when you broke the rules, intentionally or accidentally, and then let yourself off the hook. Stop being so hard on yourself. Leave that to your neighbor down the street, the one whose kids told you their mom said they can't go barefooted all the time, like Mrs. Smith, because then their floors would be dirty too. And remember, a lot of people have your back. So let them know when you need them and have their backs when they need you. That's a rule you should never break. Well, Catherine, I enjoyed reading uh, the book and the different stories here. And I, I pick up on a couple of words in your forward here. Um, you have to have the innate ability to see both the humor and the poignancy in many of life's experiences. And uh, you do have a lot of humor in here, but you have some poignant moments as well. In fact, I'm thinking about the comparison between the opening story where you are wearing high heels and stumble um, and the president of the United States has to catch you (laughs) and where you're talking with your mother who's feverishly ironing uh, a dress uh, while you're late for the funeral home. Could you just juxtapose those two to give us a flavor of the different types of stories you tell? Yes, sure. Uh, So uh, my ex-husband, He was a political editor for the St. Petersburg Times, where I was a business reporter and the parenting columnist there. And uh, about 10 years ago, we were invited to the media Christmas party, one of many media Christmas parties at the White House when Barack Obama was in office. And I got this organza black top and a friend of mine said, oh, I've got these great high black high heels with an organza ribbon. You've got to borrow them. And they were at least four inches high. And she's like, oh, you'll be fine. Just take a couple Advil. Well, before we even got through the metal detector going into the White House, I was having to lean against the walls. Like I could not balance on these shoes. So we have this really elegant evening. There's unbelievable amounts of food and crab legs coming out of these silver terrines. We won't talk about tax dollars paying for those. But um I couldn't hold a plate. I couldn't have a glass of wine. I could barely focus on anybody. So finally, at this appointed time, we go and have our picture taken with the president and the first lady. 
And uh, the president says, or the, the Marine, as we're going in, says, you will call him Mr. President and you will call her Mrs. Obama. So I go in and I say, hello, Mr. President. And then I looked at her and said, Merry Christmas, Michelle. And just realized I'd already forgotten the rules, broke one right there. And she's like, oh, that's fine. I was like, I'm sorry. And she goes, don't worry about it. It's fine. So then I guess I was a little flustered. So then we posed for our photo. And right at that moment, my whole leg, knee, ankle just gave way. And I literally fell backwards. And the president of the United States had to put his arm behind me to catch me, to keep me from hitting the ground of the map room. And he's like, don't worry, I got you. Anyway, so then I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I've not been drinking. I wore these really high heels and I borrowed them from a friend. And he leaned over and said, those are great shoes. I'm glad you wore them. You know, and so we had this kind of funny exchange. Meanwhile, my ex-husband, the reporter, was just like, he was going to ask a question, but I created so much chaos that he just left. So then I ended up asking the question he was going to ask. Anyway, so it was memorable. So then to juxtapose to another getting ready for an event, um, my sister died in a car accident when she was 31 and I was 28. And we were at my parents' house in Raleigh. And it was the night before the f the f visitation, and we were supposed to go, or it was the afternoon of the visitation, we were supposed to go down to Brownwind Funeral Home in Raleigh and kind of plan what would happen. And my mother was ironing the dress that my sister was going to be buried in. And it was, you know, one of the saddest thing I could think of. But I was pregnant with my first child, so I really couldn't even comprehend how painful it is to lose a child. So she's take going so slowly and everybody else is already, my sister, I mean, my father and a couple of relatives were already at the funeral home. And it was my job to get her there on time. And then I realized that this was the very last thing she ever could physically do for my sister. So she was just taking her time on that dress and so instead of saying, come on, it's fine, you know, just we got to get out the door, it dawned on me, you know, I'm going to let her have as, as long as she wants with this. And we cried and talked and we were a good 30 minutes late to that appointment at the funeral home. And, you know, it didn't matter. It was just so awful to watch the last thing that she would get to do for her daughter. Yeah. So the, the realization there. Um, as you write that essay, you're not sure after reading the earlier one whether it's going to be humorous, like uh, the first essay you just described, because, you know, we're late, we're late, we're late, we got to get to the funeral home, and then she's delaying. But you talk about the fact that she wanted to be Melinda's mother for five more minutes. She wanted to keep ironing, keep caring, keep teaching, keep defending, keep celebrating so that's that was hard to hard to read. I'm sure it was hard to experience as well. Um, and so you've got this sort of roller coaster <laughs> of emotions throughout this book, where you're breaking breaking these rules. Um, and one of the rules I think you, you broke was you took your adult child. I don't know if it's a broken rule or a good rule. You took your 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 child to a concert, one of these uh, outdoor mm -hmm. events uh, that other mothers were saying, "How could you possibly take your daughter and your?" you're thinking, well, better that I'm there with her, right? Right, then, right. And she's, then she's there by herself. Um, so 
lot of times when authors write books, um, you know, they're searching for something and you had such a range of essays here that touch on these various emotions. Was there a theme or something that ran through here for you? Or did you discover something about yourself through this writing process, either, you know, about the way you live or should live your life or just your writing life? Did you discover something? Well, I think I discovered a, a lot of things. And for example, that that moment in the basement with my mom when she was ironing the dress, um, that happened, like I said, when I was 28. And I didn't write about it then. Um, and I actually took a memoir writing class before I really started doing this book. And I did it you know, probably 15 years after the fact. But it was just an image that had been in my mind forever. And so by the time I wrote that, I'd had three children. And I could kind of comprehend just the, the horror of losing one of them. Um, so, and then some things I wrote six months after they happened. But I think I looked back and, you know, I'm not acting by any means like I'm mother of the year, but all the times you feel like, oh, I, was I great? Ugh, did I screw this up? Or, oh, was this fair to, you know, my ex-husband? Or was this fair, to, you know, to my parents? It's kind of like, you know, I, I was doing the best that I could. And I think that's innately what all of us are. You know, obviously people go out and do terrible things, but for the most part, we're all just trying to do the best that we can. And we need to, it was good for me to reflect on that. And then also through this process, it was something that I did over the course of five years and it became you know, my hobby. I mean, if I had a free hour, if I had a free Saturday, I went and wrote and then it became and what I was doing for me. You know, it was the one thing that I put as this is some Catherine time. So and and I stuck to that. And it, it made me feel satisfied that, uh, you know, I was, even though I was much more than just a mother or just a wife or just a reporter, it was this kind of like, I didn't, I'm not a great tennis player. I'm not a great potter, but this was, and I had no idea it would get published or what would happen to it. But I was like, this is the me time. And this is something on my little bucket list. And if I just end up stapling it together at Kinko's, this is something I want to accomplish. And then I did it. And it was a, looking back, my kids are very proud. My friends are like, this is amazing that you actually got this done. So it made me realize, you know, it was a, a feat that I finished. Yeah. And that kind of fades. Well, it, you answered a couple of questions that I was going to ask as far as the writer's life goes, which is great because I was curious about the process of writing the book, which you just described. But I'm also curious, given the fact that your profession has been writing you know, you, you write to deadlines, you write to these things. It doesn't sound like you were writing to a deadline here. You were writing these experiences. Um, and, and that in of itself was, was freeing. So I guess it felt different than what you did. Definitely. And even when I took the memoir writing class, that was, and that was a struggle. You know, we had homework and we had to re read everybody else's in the class's work. And, but it was it was freeing to not be writing a, a daily newspaper story and to just do a different style of writing. Um, and it's much easier to sit down and, you know, I didn't have to do a lot of reporting to write this book. There was I didn't have a lot of other sources. It was all things that had happened to me. And and you could write, you know, with insight and rewrite and and make it funny or make it 
sad. Whereas a, a newspaper story, and, and there's some amazing, you know, literary feats in in journalism. But as a business reporter, I was writing a lot of kind of you know more your dry turn of events. So authors sometimes don't know um, where, why a story pops into their head or why they start with a particular project. Do you remember the essay, the first essay you wrote that was a part of this book? So it was ultimately when I fell at the White House, I called the friend who loaned me the shoes and said, that, well, Barack Obama likes your shoes. And she said, Catherine, please promise me you're going to write the book. So that was when I decided, okay, uh, if you can say you fell at the White House, maybe you've got a book in you. Okay, so we deal with uh, issues of the heart in this book in more than one ways. Uh, you've, you, you, you've got uh, family, you've got relationships, you've got loss, but you've also got uh, a chapter where you talk about this idea of rebooting and uh, tattoos and resilience. Oh. <laughs> you, you yourself had a heart no, issue. I, right, right. Yeah, yeah, and you had a medical emergency and the technician who starts your heart again that it stopped briefly mm-hmm. describes it kind of like rebooting your computer. Right, right. Uh, so that was, uh, and it was, again, one of these ironies, my I'd had two or three heart issues over the years. The first one at Arapahoe, North Carolina, when I was working at Camp Seafair at age 17. And then I went on blood thinner and it got fixed. And and then again, I'm still having them at age 40. Meanwhile, my second daughter was born with uh, heart defects that were different from mine. Mine was more electrical and hers were physical in the anatomy. So she had had heart surgery twice. I had had these interactions, these interventions where they literally, you know, kind of stop your heart and restart it to get it back on its correct rhythm. So that was comparing my experience as 17, the first time I had it, and then comparing it again to how you feel when you have a newborn baby and you find out she's got heart problems and then us kind of growing together with these. And then ultimately she got a tattoo of a little heart with a hole in it right below her ribs. I do not have a tattoo, but it was kind of the, the journey that we shared. And like I said, there's, there's humor in that. Uh, I thought I really did try to put, and that's maybe what, what Lee Smith said or what I learned from my parents that most instances are not, you know, completely tragic. There's, there's always some sidestep that you look at and are like, okay, well, this is kind of funny that this is happening right now, you know? So, so Catherine, what do you hope that uh, readers uh, experience uh, with this book? Well, I hope that I probably now sound like I'm overstating it. I hope they realize that life is messy and we don't have to put all these pictures on Instagram and act like everything's perfect and 15 years ago, the Christmas card that, of course, you're going to send out a, a positive Christmas card. But to not be so down on ourselves or down on our life or our parents or our kids or our friends when things go wrong. And um, I did realize that during the time I wrote this book, I got divorced. I had cancer. I bought my first house. Something else happened. Oh, I switched jobs. I started in my own business. And I wrote a book all after the age of 50. So that's kind of talk about a reboot. That was kind of uh, a realization that I came to in writing the book that I'd kind of had 
not, I wouldn't say started over by any means, but another chapter, several other chapters. Yeah. So we're, we're about out of time. I'd like you to turn to the afterward of the book. Um, you describe a situation where you're on a plane and you, you know, there's a man sitting next to you and you're trying not to, uh, you know, um, you don't have the ring on your finger anymore and mm-hmm. he doesn't have one either. And you're like, Oh gosh, am I going to have to have a conversation? And what am I going to talk about? And you said he was very kind. He was actually offered some advice. And out of that advice, you had, uh, you know, shared that advice with a friend and a friend was leaving and a friend bought you uh, a wine glass with an inscription that related to this advice. And I'd like, if you would, to read just the last three paragraphs, starting with inside the ornately wrapped box. Certainly. Thank you, Landis. Uh, inside the ornately wrapped box was a personalized wine glass with my flight companion's wise words etched onto the glass. There's a reason the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. I make a point of choosing this glass whenever I finish an essay, land a new client, or simply book a flight to some exotic location like Charlotte and toast the unknown that lies ahead. Well, I'm glad to know that Charlotte's an exotic location. (laughs) (laughs) More exotic than Raleigh. Yeah. Now, Catherine, you describe yourself as going from journalism to the dark side and then to your own dark side being, I think, publicity and then to your own business. Um, Your business now, you're writing, you're teaching, you're sharing. I'm not teaching. Uh, It's no rights, public relations and writing. So I um, started my own PR firm and I'm doing a a lot of uh, freelance writing and some ghost writing ranging from helping people write their family memoirs. I'm helping someone ghostwrite a book on design. I'm writing for a legal website. And then I have uh, several PR clients, the the local university and our African-American museum. So, and I did forge that out of my own contacts. So I'm I'm supporting myself completely from writing, which I guess I've done all along, but now I'm the only one that's landing the business. Well, that's great. Well, listeners, you can find out more about uh, the book Rules for the Southern Rule Breaker in the show notes uh, uh, at Charlotte's podcast uh, website and uh, more about Catherine, some images and links, et cetera. So, uh, Catherine, thank you so much for being a part of Charlotte Ridge's podcast. Well, Landis, you've made this very fun. Thank you. You're you're obviously great at, at your second or third venture in life. So <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, 
we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.